0: to another episode of Amarcus Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and Professor Akil Amar is here with me, as always. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy.
1: Um, we didn't rehearse this, but how many episodes are we up to now?
0: Uh, I think it's 137, something like that. So we're, we're oh more, gosh. more than two and a half years, well, more than two and a half years. Um, and we've never missed a week.
1: Wow. I, you know, at some point, we're going to need to do an anniversary party.
0: Yeah, well, that would be great. Maybe we'll invite some of our listeners.
1: That would be very cool.
0: They can they can write in. Uh, and, of course, listeners, you can, just as a reminder, you can submit questions from our website, com slash podcast hyphen two. And uh, there's a place there every week to submit questions. A lot, of, a lot of the listeners have been doing that. We've gotten some great ones. There's so much new that we haven't really gotten into them, although... I will say, uh, listeners, that even if we're not addressing your questions specifically uh, yet, uh, because we do have some question and answer episodes, we do read them and we think about them and they do inform our discussions, uh, even if we're not addressing them specifically here today.
1: And we do have these potpourri episodes where we, you know, they're, they're often like, you know, I, we sometimes I think about it as like prime minister's questions or something. I got to, you know, I just have no idea what's coming next, but um, it's fun. And for our anniversary episode, Andy, I mean, it's not too early to start thinking about this. We could maybe also have some of our great guests who don't know each other, but we could bring them on and, you know, just for, you know, a, a trip down memory lane.
0: Yes, that would be great.
1: Um, um, and just to, by way of reminding our audience, you know, if you're just discovering us, because we're we're growing, there's an archive you can binge and uh, uh, experience. We, we've got, you know, if there are 130 plus episodes, you know, almost 140, the average an hour and a half a piece um, every week, you know, for the last two and a half years, you do the math. Um, yeah. So, so there, there's lots for you to experience if you're so inclined, and it's all free. Yes, and and I mentioned
0: the website where we have them all, but they're also all on all the podcast services. So, you know, if you're tuning into this, for example, through Apple Podcasts, which is how about eighty percent of our listeners do uh, tune in, they're all there. So, but but the show notes, the extra materials, the written materials, the articles, the decisions, the you know opinions, and and. Uh, excerpts Eclipse. from books and even even video clips, you know, yeah. are, are on com. And there's other, lots of other stuff there, too, uh, about, uh, you know, Akil's uh, sort of oeuvre. It's located on on that website. It's a pretty amazing
1: place. So and, and it's all free. This is a great resource for a researcher or a citizen, high schooler or a senior scholar and everyone in between. And, and lawyer. it's yeah. It's, and it's a, it's a, it's a great resource actually cars on the table. Let me say one other thing, just cause I haven't truthfully plugged this in the last 30 seconds or in most of the past episodes. I love doing this podcast. It's so fun hanging out with Andy, but what I also really love is writing books, researching books, talking about books. Andy's helping me with the new book. We talked about it every day more than the podcast stuff, that I'm telling Andy. Here's what I found today. Here's what I'm going to read tomorrow. I would love you to experience the books. I put in a, a lot of effort. Andy has put in a lot of effort on these books. You don't have to buy them. You can get them from your public library. They're not expensive, actually. Um, they make great gifts and stocking stuffers and Hanukkah presents. And
0: don't try putting the words that made us into a stocking, or you won't. Have uh, okay, okay. So that agree, but
1: even if you're not going to read them, find some, especially youngster or lawyer you know, who, who you think might benefit. Yeah,
0: no, I, I certainly agree. And and we're, a little later in this episode, we're going to be talking about when you're going, many of you will have an opportunity to read the books uh, in the context of meeting with Akil personally um, at an Scholar program. So we're going to talk about that a little later in the episode. But now, unfortunately, every week, it seems he weighs over um, everything, <laughs> the... the uh Mr. Trump, former President Trump, is in the news once again. Um, in his his uh, dos- legal dossier is expanding, um, and uh, he's indicted again.
1: And um, when, Andy, when I was a kid, maybe you saw this too. There was a cartoon, and it involved a mouse character. His name was Savoir Fair, and his little tagline was "Savoir Fair is everywhere." <laughs> you know, and, and it just seems like he is just unavoidable. Andy, you and I offline were talking about the great Frank Lloyd Wright building Falling Water in an amazing architectural achievement. I'm not sure I've ever told you the story about the first time I visited Falling Water, which was with Marianne Trump-Berry. So I'm not going to tell that story now, but maybe audience, if you're interested, I'll tell you a very interesting story at some point about Marianne Trump. This is way before Donald Trump was a presidential candidate. But yes, he's unavoidable and he's back in the news. Just when you thought was safe.
0: Yes, and you know we wouldn't even talk about it if there weren't interesting constitutional uh, issues to address. So we're going to try to approach things, you know, from that point of view, um, not get into the minutia uh, uh, or minutian, you know, of the uh, <laughs> of the case. Um, so there's there's a number of issues here uh, that that maybe didn't occur to everyone, but occurred to you. Uh, and one of them is, okay, he's indicted for various, uh, actions that he is alleged to have taken that have to do in some ways with January 6th, but really also with the whole lame duck period and the whole period, you know, uh, or even before that, actually the whole idea that the election, um, did not go smoothly, uh, Largely because of his actions, and um, so Jack Smith has, has indicted him on a, whole, a number of counts, I think four counts. Is this the right way to go after or to you know to prosecute someone uh, for their actions uh, as president? So um, you know we've talked a little bit in the past about when January sixth happened. Um, that he could that uh president Trump should be impeached and was impeached uh, for a second time so is that still something that's available now um we've we talked about we had a whole episode about you know the trial of a uh of, of the president after he's left office um I don't hear anybody talking about impeaching him now but is that something that we should be thinking
1: about Okay, yes. Yeah, so you just mentioned the key word, not the um, the I word of indictment, but of impeachment, because that's what I want to talk about in in part. Impeaching Donald Trump a third time, you so know, once more with feeling. And at this point, the audience's eyes might be rolling. What is this lunatic talking about? Third times the charm. Maybe that could be our title. Okay, <laughs> it's not going to happen. But I want to make an argument that's actually what should happen if we actually understood the Constitution right side up rather than upside down. I'm not saying the indictment is improper, it is not. It's altogether fitting and proper to do it, but it's actually not the best way to handle this problem and think about it. All the questions that people are asking out there like, well, even if he were convicted. Okay, does that actually prevent him from holding office? And if not, you know, how is that going to work? Can he pardon himself after becoming president? You know, if he wins, even if he were convicted, can he pardon himself? And even if he can't pardon himself, he could, I would think, step down for a nanosecond. A vice president could pardon him. Um, And then he could step back in. My own view has always been, and I've written about this, Andy, in my books, which I haven't plugged. Actually, I have plugged them in the last 30 seconds. Okay. But the book that I really want people to read right now is The Words That Made Us, the first in a three-volume series. And I'm in the middle of volume two right now. And that's what Andy and I talk about every day offline. And that's where my head is. And I'm very excited about this. But in chapter one of a book that I wrote called America's Unwritten Constitution in 2012, this is actually the opening chapter I ask a question about, in effect, who presides at the vice president's impeachment trial. And I thought this was very theoretically interesting. I didn't think it was ever going to happen. But so why do I begin a whole book with that? Because here's the point. When you read the Constitution, it seems as clear as crystal that when you just read the words— the vice president would preside his own impeachment trial because the words say the Senate tries all impeachments. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's Article 1, Section 3. And the vice president ordinarily presides over the Senate, except um, when he's not there, she's not there. Then there's a Senate pro, president. Pro, or when there's a presidential impeachment. Okay, and I'm going to talk about presidential impeachment in just a moment. But what about a vice presidential impeachment? And I say, so when they read the words, the vice president presides. She's the presiding officer of the Senate and the Senate tries all impeachments. And and now she's in the room. She's she's the defendant. She says, i like the gavel, please. It cannot be right, I say, because there's a deep, unwritten principle that trumps, so to speak, that governs, that no person can be a judge in his own case. Okay, And that goes all the way back to Roman law. It's in Blackstone. It's a presupposition of the Constitution. So... You can't sensibly read the Constitution literally here because no founder would have thought that. They would have thought there's an implicit exception and it's actually in Blackstone. Blackstone uses this as uh, one of his two examples of how you do legal interpretation. And Blackstone is written before the Constitution and all the framers read Blackstone. He's published in the 1760s and he gives two examples. One is he says, well, if the law says that Every dispute that arises in a certain manner under Lord Graham in Downton Abbey or something, you know, in this fiefdom, all the lawsuits between, you know, presumably the the peasants and all all the rest, all lawsuits in this manner, M-A-N-O-R, are to be decided in the manner Dale, D-A-L-E, that's what he said, are to be decided by the Lord of the manor, the Lord of the manor Dale but obviously not if the dispute involves the lord himself because he can't be a judge in his own case you know it, it even though the statute doesn't say so its scope is implicitly limited by by that principle It's a, from roman law ne- nemo judex no, no one can be a judge in his own case nemo judex sua causa no one can be a judge in his own case so um um, it goes without saying that he can't be a judge in his own case. The other example is, this is called the rule of absurdity. There's a law, it's a capital offense to shed blood on the streets of Bologna. And yet if a physician, someone falls in front of the physician and he administers a, an, an emergency tracheotomy to save someone's life, literally blood would have been shed on the streets of Bologna, but you should be giving the guy a medal, not you know putting him to death. Okay. Blackstone calls this the rule of absurdity. We can't read everything literally. We need to understand that there are implicit exceptions, rules of, sc- um, of scope and purpose. Justice Gorsuch, if you're out there, pay attention to this, because actually this is an area of disagreement, I think, between your more literalist approach and mine. And Justice Scalia, the lady Justice Scalia, gets the absurdity doctrine wrong. He actually writes about it, and and he misstates the absurdity doctrine. okay. Why am I going into all this? Because under the same principle that you can't be a judge in your own case, which is chapter one of America's Unwritten Constitution, I say it, of course, also follows. And this was way before Trump, 2012, that no person can pardon himself. You can't be a judge in your own case. Now, people are talking about all this in connection with a criminal prosecution, you see, because they're saying, well, even if he were convicted, could he run from prison? could he be elected once elected? could he pardon himself? I'm saying no, I don't think he can pardon himself. and uh, and I said that way before you know Donald Trump was a gleam in anyone president Donald Trump was a gleam in anyone's eyes and that back in 2012. But from a formal juridical point of view, even Ake couldn't quite object to Trump from prison stepping aside saying I actually am temporarily disabled here. It's now the vice president. Now the vice president, whoever the flunky is, says, I hereby pardon Donald Trump. And now Trump, you see, has been pardoned and, and now he springs back and he says, Oh, I'm no longer disabled and he becomes president. You see, now if this were done by pre-arrangement, if this were a conspiracy or an agreement, that might itself be criminal in a certain way or improper. But let's just imagine, just to keep, I know this, this is fanciful, but just to keep the hypothetical pure and clean, let's imagine there were no pre- Arrangement, okay. Well, then I would say that's a valid pardon because someone has to be present at all times. It's a deep constitutional principle. You, presidential power has to be vested in someone at every nanosecond because things can arise and you need someone to deal with them immediately. Uh, an insurrection, a, a, a war. This vice president turned president, because of the Twenty Fifth Amendment, which I've written about in great detail in a whole bunch of pieces, is the acting president of the United States. He or she has issued a pardon. If there's been no prearrangement, it's a valid pardon. Let's go back, Andy, to an earlier episode. We had one of our first with the great Bob Woodward. Bob Woodward changed his mind about Gerald Ford's pardon of Richard Nixon. Nixon stepped down, not temporarily, but altogether he resigned. Ford became president. Ford later pardoned Nixon. There was no deal. No corrupt bargain, no prearrangement. Bob Woodward at the time thought there was. And he tells this story, I think we may have even told it on the podcast, where I think it's a Sunday morning and Bernstein calls him up at 7 a.m. or something. He fumbles for the phone and Bernstein says, have you heard? Have you heard? And Bob says, like, what? And he says, the son of a bitch, just pardon the son of a bitch, you know, and Bob immediately knew what he was talking about. And, and Bernstein had the very earthy way of expressing himself. And at the time, Bob thought this was all part of the corruption of Watergate. He changed his mind about that over the years. He interviewed Ford. He's done this in several public occasions. Where I actually say, I now have come, come to believe that we, whether you agree with what Ford did or not, it was not corrupt at all. He did it for raison d'etat, so that the country would move forward. And he just thought, we, you know, we can't just wallow in Trump. Oops, I mean Nixon. You know, we've got to move forward rather than just having every news cycle dominated by this, you know, past stuff. You could think that was a good decision. You could think it was a bad decision, but it was a lawful and not corrupt decision. So, in my hypothetical, because this is what everyone's talking about right now, they said, "Oh, well, if you were con- if you were tried and convicted, and you're not president yet, again, Donald Trump, you know, could you win, become president, and pardon yourself?" And I'm saying, "No, you can't pardon yourself." But this is obviously the OLC will write a memo if they haven't already saying you can do this as long as there's no prearrangement. If there's prearrangement, that itself is a crime of a certain sort. I would I would think that's an obstruction of justice. Well, along those lines, you know, the Republican Party
0: is, seems to be fond of these pledges where all the people that are running in the primaries, you know, have to pledge certain things um, in a sense the one thing they have to pledge is that they're going to support the nominee if it's not them. But Mm -hmm. I could see, I could see a scenario here where they, they have a pledge where they say that they'll pardon Trump if he's convicted or something like that. And if they had this pledge where all the candidates had to do that, I mean, obviously that would be ill-advised given what you've just said, but if they, if they did it, would that be enough to sort of formalistic
1: pledge Um, would that? somehow well it wouldn't be self-executed and the pledge of course only operates if that person is president and if the pardon makes trump president so it would only be you know trump's running mate uh-huh. whether they publicly mm-hmm. pledge or not so you
0: could see and just to re- respond to that you could see a scenario under which these these other candidates have have made this pledge and now trump chooses his vp let's say yes. he gets the nomination he chooses his vp kind of based on and first of all that's a likely pool for for VP candidates or people that have run. Um, so,
1: uh, and, and Andy, this is him- great. You're right. I, I spoke too soon. You've properly. Oh, wow. This is this, my students do not do this all the time in my classroom, but here's what you're just saying. And you're right. Oh, and it comes down to in a word intent, which is going to be key to the to Jack Smith. Okay. So if you pardon, you're the vice president. Let's, I said, you, there can't be a deal. You can say, there could be a deal, there could be a pledge, but here's what it would have to be. I'm pardoning you because I believe you to be innocent or something, or for, I'm not pardoning you in order to wield power myself. You know, that might be a certain kind of corrupt bargain. And in fact, I'm not president except, you know, I'm queen for a day, whatever. I'm I'm, I'm president for a nanosecond so they can pardon you. And then back to you and, and President Trump. When it came to Bob Woodward, and Carl Bernstein, the accusation was Nixon is stepping down and not temporarily, but permanently, and making Ford president of the United States with all the power, you know, and trappings that go with that. In exchange for the pardon, me, the 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 thought was Ford had agreed in advance that if you make me president, I'm already the vice president. If you make me president, give me all this power in exchange for that. You know, even though you're guilty as all get out or whatever, but for a private benefit for me, I will pardon you. That is, it seems to me, corrupt. It did not happen. That's what a lot of people at the time thought, you know, had happened. But if you are pardoning someone because you think they're actually innocent in law, in fact, this is a vendetta, this is a partisan blah, blah, blah from the Biden administration. No, that would not be intrinsically corrupt. It would not, I think, vitiate the part. It comes down to intent, you see, in all sorts of very subtle ways. But but here's the point so far in our conversation. We're all focused on criminal prosecution right now, and that raises at least a couple of issues. Can criminal prosecution itself, uh, conviction, disqualify you from the presidency? I think maybe not. And as a practical matter, could you be president from prison well maybe as a practical matter you couldn't but and could you pardon yourself and get out of that practical disability i would say no but is there a mechanism for you to get out of that i would say actually yes i'm going to talk about how impeachment raises none of these complexities it's 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 the better way if if what you're really about is donald trump should never be present again These criminal prosecutions cannot guarantee that. Um, Now, state prosecutions might be different, and we're going to talk about that in a minute because the pardon power doesn't apply to state prosecutions. Um, We're Georgia to initiate something, and then, of course, there's already the New York indictment on the Stormy Daniels um, uh, hush money stuff. Those are state prosecutions. The federal ones thus far are the Mar-a-Lago thing, which we've talked about, um, mainly his actions as ex-president and this one which are his actions in the lame duck period as president this most recent one
0: so what you're talking about here is you're designing your prosecution whether it's an impeachment one or a criminal trial um not so much around the offense but rather on, on around the punishment that you seek mm-hmm. so you're mm-hmm. saying okay this is we want to punish this guy for this and this is the punishment we want and this is the best way to achieve that punishment. That's not usually the way we think about, you know, uh, you
1: know, whether to prosecute somebody or something like that, right? Which is why I think this is perfectly appropriate. It's just not going to get some people. what. And this is not Jack Smith's. It's not, this is not what he should be thinking about. That's why I said this is a perfectly appropriate modality instrument, but it is ill-suited If the whole idea is to prevent Donald Trump from ever being present again, which is a pretty important thing, you see. So it would be like you've got this really nice monkey wrench. Can you use it to hammer in? a nail. I suppose so. If you don't have a hammer, you could actually take a huge monkey wrench in front, but it just, it's not actually the right tool to get the nail into the wood. The right tool is a hammer. The right tool to claw out the nail would be the claw end of a hammer. Could you drill it out? Yeah, there, there are a bunch of things you could do, but you know, I'm talking about what's the tool for the purpose. Criminal law is about traditionally four things. Um. This is what you learn in Criminal Law 101. It's about retribution. You just did this thing wrong and you should pay an eye for an eye. It's about deterrence, general deterrence. We want to discourage other people from doing this. And so if we punish you, they're going to be discouraged specific deterrent. If you're in prison, you can't do this thing again. Although maybe you see there are some things that you could do. And Socrates would say, no, actually, it shouldn't be about those things. It should be about rehabilitation. This should maybe be like more of a, almost a medical thing. You've done this thing and it's wrong. And instead of making you worse, and instead of harming you, we should be trying to help you so that you you heal your soul and you don't do this thing again. Crime law, one. This is what you learn maybe the first day, the four traditional functions of punishment, general deterrence, specific deterrence, It's is also called incapacitation, retribution or vengeance, or retributive justice. You did this thing, and even if you're never likely to do it again, and even if no one else is ever likely to do it again, you should pay. You did this thing. It's the karma of the universe or rehabilitation. Okay, And what I'm saying is a couple of these are maybe connected to you shouldn't be president again. You shouldn't be in a position to to do bad things again, but this is not a good instrument for that. If that's your purpose, this is actually not a good instrument because the punishment, probably the sentence probably doesn't include disqualification. And even if it is, it did, could be overcome by a pardon, if not from you, then from your vice president.
0: Yeah well, that's what I wanted to ask, um... You know, under sec, you know, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, um, it's possible to be disqualified from uh, serving in office. Um, it's, you know, arguable, I suppose, whether that includes president, because it says it doesn't specifically name
1: president, it says hold any office. Right. And I would think if participating in in insurrection makes you ineligible to be secretary of state or justice or chief justice, you know, or head of the the defense department, I would think, as lawyers would say, a multo forciore, you know, even, you know, more strongly, you should not be president of the United States. Now, the counter argument is, oh. For those other things, the people of the United States didn't elect you to right. be chief justice or whatever, and they did um, for this. But no, I would take the position, of course, Section 3 applies to the presidency, functionally and structurally and textually. Um, but... That's not, Andy, I know here's where you're going. That's not going to be implicated by this prosecution because insurrection isn't one of the counts. Aiding and abetting insurrection is not one of the indictment counts brought by the special prosecutor here. It could have been, perhaps, but it's not.
0: Well, it's not just insurrection. It's also giving aid or comfort to the enemies uh, of thereof, and thereof could be, What does that refer to? I think it refers to the Constitution. So if you say when you when you read that sentence, so if that's the case, then I think it's very. You could make a a strong argument that these these uh, counts, which include you know obstructing a basic right under the Constitution, the right to vote, um, that's one of the counts. In fact. Um, Yeah, I think it would
1: be a bit, it might be a bit of a stretch because actually I'm not sure those are elements of the offense Mm -hmm. that are being proved beyond a reasonable doubt that these were enemies of the United States that you were conspiring with, for example. You might think so. And on the facts, it might be so. But unless you have to prove that beyond reasonable doubt, I think the counter argument would be because they're not elements of the offense, they don't really fall within the, the, the sweep of section three. You could read it more broadly, but, um, so you're right. Someone could possibly say section three is triggered here, that, uh, but Andy, um, so you're right, who would, and, and there might be issues, but who adjudicates that. Can a judge impose as part of her sentence, his sentence disqualification? Oh, I don't know, because actually it's not provided for by the statute and it wasn't proved as an element of, of the offense. Could an election official say, ah, let's say in Pennsylvania you know, in Georgia or um, Arizona or someplace where it actually might matter. I, secretary of state of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, think that because Trump has been convicted and I follow that trial, I think that conviction necessarily means that he aided and abetted, you know, uh, enemies of the United States. And therefore I'm not going to allow his name to appear on the ballot, because I don't think he's eligible just as if you weren't natural born. He's not eligible. If he weren't 35, he's not eligible. If he's not a citizen of the United States. Now, if an election official tried to do that, Trump could initiate a suit saying you're, you're wrong about that. And there could be adjudication on that. On that issue, a podcast audience, there is a new article forthcoming by two dear friends of mine. It's in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review by my law school roommate, Mike Paulson. And by my former head TA, Will Bode, all about these issues. It's about Section 3, and that's one of the set of issues it actually addresses is how do you enforce it if you're already in office? And there's an argument that you have actually, you're already in office, now the facts become clear, you violated Section 3. What's the proper mechanism? There's this writ called quo warranto that can be brought to test the eligibility of any officer. So you could have a quo warranto proceeding, I think being brought, brought almost by anyone in the world. Everyone in the world might have this is called standing to bring a lawsuit. This is one of the prerogative writs in Britain. So to test the legal entitlement of an existing officeholder to an existing office. There's a a thing called a writ of quo warranto. But now we're talking about, oh, you're not in office. You're, you're, you're seeking the office of President of the United States. How can that be adjudicated? And, and I believe I haven't read the piece in great detail. It, It was only sent to me recently by my friend. Mike and, and big shout out to uh, Mike and Will. Both their piece, which is all about all sorts of section three issues, is to repeat forthcoming in University of Pennsylvania Law Review. It may already have been uploaded in SSRN or some other place. And it addresses some of these section three complexities. Um, and I think one of the hypotheticals, you know, that they engaged is, well, could an election officer Simply say you're not eligible. The person who has also written a lot about this recently and thought a lot about it is my friend Gerard Magliaca. He's a professor in Indiana, Indianapolis, a law school graduate, clerk for Guido Calabresi. He's a regular a contributor to the Balkanization blog, and, and Jack Balkan has been on our show. And he has written a lot about Section 3, sometimes with my colleague, the great Bruce Ackerman. So I'm not holding myself out as an expert on all things Section 3. If our audience wants to know more about Section 3, check out check out Magliaka, check out Bode and Paulson. There's also a congressional research report that came
0: out in 2022 on Section 3 called the Insurrection Bar to Office, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment.
1: Yeah, and I haven't read that and it might be very, very good. You know, many of the CRS reports, the Congressional Research Service reports are very, very good indeed, but I can't vouch for it or them because I I haven't read it and I don't know the authors. Whereas. I, I know Bode. He's very substantial. I know Paulson. He's very substantial. Um, I know Magliocca. Some of his, his work is some of my favorite stuff out there. He wrote a great biography of, of John Bingham, for example. Podcast audience, I'm being very straight with you on a whole bunch of things. I hold myself out as an expert, maybe the expert on this topic or that one. This is one that I haven't really, section three is one that I haven't really investigated in great detail. And our audience knows that when we wanted to talk about section four and uh, the debt ceiling and all the rest, we brought in people that I thought had more expertise than, than, than I on that. We brought in Sai Prakash on one side and, um, and Jack Balkan on the other. But I am an expert. I'm holding myself out as. If not, you know, maybe even truthfully, on honestly, the expert there, uh, knowing as much as anyone else out there. That's what I mean by the expert. Maybe there's someone else who knows a lot, but not more, just as much. I'm holding myself out as the expert on impeachment. And I think, and I want to move from indictments to impeachment and tell you about what some of the advantages of impeachment are. And we have past episodes about impeaching and, and trying ex-presidents. And, and my friend Philip Bob is going to hate, hate, hate you know, Sir Philip Bobbitt, you know, what I'm about to say about impeachment, but I want to elaborate my crazy idea that that's actually the better, more fitting, more appropriate instrument once you understand actually the situation.
0: You know, um, so I guess to summarize quickly what you said that, there, that it's that disqualification of the, of the, the president or the ex-president um, from holding the presidential office again is very, very clearly uh, spelled out by the Constitution in the case of impeachment and, and conviction as one of the possible sentences and how it would be carried out is very clear and, and it's, it's clean. Whereas the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, there's a lot of questions we don't really know. Does it even apply here based on these these charges? If so, how would it be enforced? And so it's messy. Uh, so that's, that's
1: one reason that you might... Brilliant. Totally great. So here's what we said, you just said. First of all, these statutes don't have the word disqualification in them as a sentencing consequence of conviction. So the statutes don't even say that word. That's a real problem because a judge can't easily impose a sentence that's not provided for by the statute. And that goes back to Hudson and Goodwin. Hudson and Goodwin says there's no federal common law of crimes. That means a judge can't make up a crime. It has to, it has to be statute. A federal judge can't make up a federal offense. It has to be statutorily specified. And this is, this is amazing, you know, but, um, this is what I talk about. I didn't know we were going to go, um, here at all, but, but this is such a uh, generative conversation back and forth. I'm seeing things I didn't see even when we began. The key case, which I talk about in great detail in the words that made us, um, which they have plugged in the last 30 seconds, is a case called Hudson and Goodwin. Here's the key. Hudson and Goodwin stands for the proposition to repeat that there's no federal common law of crimes, meaning that you have to have a statute in place at the federal level. And that's not true, podcast audience, when it comes to states. Classic common law offenses as to which there were no statute but judges just recognize these as criminal based on kind of custom and morality include murder, rape, arson, burglary. I think there's seven or so um, offenses t- traditionally at English common law from you know, the 1600s or even earlier. And there weren't statutes, just England says, here's what murder is. Here's what rape is. Here's robbery and burglary and arson. I think there was just a, a couple more, maybe larceny when it comes to states even if a state legislature has not passed a statute a state court can say we recognize arson as criminal and here are the elements of the offense which is setting fire to a, a dwelling place you know and burglary is you know invading actually a dwelling place at night okay at common law and i think i got that wrong i think i conflated arson and burglary before but okay and The courts also tell you what the punishment is, the sentence, and the legislature hasn't. None of that's true at the federal level. The Congress has to make it a crime, specify what the elements of the crime are, and specify the sentence, the consequences. This is what Hudson and Goodwin says, a very important opinion. I teach it in my federal jurisdiction class. Most con law people don't know it. It's central to my last book because John Adams says, oh, we're cutting people a break with the Sedition Act of 1798, part of the now infamous Alien Sedition Act. Because without this statute, actually the common law of sedition would be in effect. And that's actually very punitive. Our statute actually recognizes certain defenses um, to sedition that the common law doesn't. Our statute is a liberalization of the common law to which the Jeffersonian answer is no. In the absence of the statute, there's liberty, there's freedom. There's no law at all. There's no federal law, uh, a common law of, of crimes. Um, there's no federal common law of sedition. So without the statute, People are free and clear with the statute. You're actually providing for a punishment later on Hudson and Goodwin comes along and resolves that definitively. Yeah. So just, uh, I think
0: as a layman, just to summarize what you just said, you know, at, at the state level, um, statute or no statute, courts can actually generate law in effect without the legislature on, on the basis that this is the common law, they can say this is the law, even though there's no statute. Right, and and at at the federal level, if you're charged at the federal level with something, um, you can't. That can't happen. And
1: here's the key sentence mm -hmm. from this Marshall Court opinion. It's called United States versus Hudson and Goodwin. It's an 1812 case, Andy. It's a Supreme Court case, Marshall Court, 1812, United States versus Hudson and Goodwin. Here's the sentence, and oh my God, it's just so crisp. And this is also unusual because it's one of the very few landmark Marshall Court opinions not authored by Marshall himself. Um, and the court was probably not unanimous. Here's the sentence: the legislative authority of the union that is Congress, must first make an act a crime, affix a punishment to it, you know, tell us what the sentence is, and declare the court that shall have jurisdiction of the offense. So they're saying like three things. You have to define the elements of the offense, what is the crime, you know, um, and what is the punishment, the sentence, and who's going to actually be able to, to hear that case. If the statute itself, the statutes that Jack Smith, that the prosecutor is invoking here, don't say disqualification, you see, that's not then the automatic the, the punishment for for that. And under Hudson and Goodwin, there'd be a real problem imposing disqualification there might be some issues or the, impli- you are we it's implicit okay because on the facts of this case the conspiracy did involve aiding and abetting enemies of the United States or something but was that proved as an element of the offense okay so the statute doesn't say disqualification at all maybe you could say the ankle bones connected to the to the knee bone or something statute doesn't say anything now section 3 does of the 14th amendment does say disqualification, but only over a certain domain, only involving insurrection and aiding and abetting enemies. And those are all issues here. My claim is, Oh, if only there were a place in the constitution that just talked about disqualification across the board. Oh my God, there is. It's the impeachment clause. To repeat, disqualification isn't even in the words of the statutes. It is in the 13th Amendment, in the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which interacts with the statutes, but in a complex way, and you'd still have to prove insurrection or aiding and abetting um, enemies. and that. Or, 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 you could look at the other place where it's just disqualification, full stop, not any of these complexities, these wrinkles. That's the impeachment clause. So let's actually read the key language together. And, and I know Philip is tearing his hair out and, and rending his tunic. Philip Bobbitt. Um, when we talk about all this, because because there are going to be some issues. Oh, what about double jeopardy? Oh, he's no longer in office. Oh, is he really an officer? Yes, he is an officer. Here's what Article one says. And it's about punishment and the purposes of punishment and all the rest. But this is impeachment punishment. Impeachment is a set, its own special sort of thing. Judgment in cases of impeachment. See, this is a judicialized thing. And the Senate, you see, tries the thing. And it's on oath or affirmation as if they're judges, because they are here. They're judges and jurors jurors in impeachment situations. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust or profit under the United States. Okay. So they're telling us, look in impeachment, once you're convicted, they can't cut your head off. They can't have any other kind of capital punishment. They can't put you in prison for the rest of your life or even for a day. Impeachment isn't about battle. We have other modalities, instruments for Incarceration. The regular criminal law in Hudson and Goodwin says, "Oh, but you have to have a federal statute in advance that specifies the crime and specifies the punishment and the court." Okay, here they're they're limiting impeachment. Okay, they're saying it's a political crime, um, um, uh, with political defendants of a certain sort, uh, tried by a political body, the the Senate of the United States, that administers a political punishment, removal from office, and de- and the possibility of disqualification for future office holding—it's the apt provision if that's what we're worried about for Donald Trump. That he, as a political person, as a, in fact a government official, uh, misbehaved, and he should never have governmental power ever again. You know, forget whether he should—he should rot in prison or something like that. That's what we have ordinary criminal law for. This is a provision about political crimes by political persons with political punishment, automatic removal and the permissibility of disqualification. There are going to be a whole bunch of complexities here. Well, haven't we already done that? Double jeopardy, triple jeopardy. You know, he's no longer in office. Um, Do you need a simple majority to disqualify? It does have to be two thirds. There are going to be some complexities here that we need to talk about. But I want to say, let's talk about impeachment.
0: Okay, let's just uh, take a break for a minute and talk about some really exciting stuff coming up. Uh, for our audience and for the world, really, um, with uh, with EverScholar, uh, you know, we've been been teasing the fact that uh, scholar is going to have some exciting programs, and one of them is going to be uh, with Akil. So let's talk about that one first. Akhil, you are going to be joined by um, one of your heroes, Gordon Wood, once again, uh, and others.
1: So who's been on the podcast? You know, and and um, for those of you who, if you're just joining the podcast, there are lots of past episodes. You know, with amazing people. You know,
0: and one thing that uh, that I love about those those episodes is I get to meet these people, and you know I get to talk to them about these important matters, and you know get to know them a little bit. And we do some prep, and then afterwards, and I I mention that because one of the things about these Ever Scholar programs is that. Yes, you get, meet, you get to meet Akil. You get to meet Gordon Wood. You get to meet Professor Paul Grimstad from Yale, who's the, the third member of our faculty here, and uh, in this program. And, and Andy Lipkett. Well, yeah, that's the drawback. But, um, but not only do you get to meet them, but you actually get to know them. So, you know, we're going to be having this program in January, January 11th to 14th in Florida. Warm weather in January, in Boca Raton, actually. Um, and the program's going to be on reverberations of the revolution. And by that, we mean the American Revolution. And it'd be hard to imagine a, you know, kind of more of an all star cast to learn from than yourself, Akil, and I guess one of your heroes in Gordon, and Professor Grimstad, who is an expert on the literature and the ideas. Of the, of the revolution and of the period in the early 19th century. So um, tell me a little bit about what you're, what you're thinking, how you're conceptualizing this
1: program. Honestly, I'm thinking about hanging out with Gordon Wood. And, and so that's going to be the same thing, you know, that some of the, um, the ever scholars are, are going to be thinking, but that's why, you know, they're going to want to do it. So we've had episodes, past episodes, about some of my heroes. And we've talked about John Hardy and we've talked about, um, Guido Calabresi and Telford Taylor and Hugo Black and Walter Dellinger. And we're going to have future episodes about um, Owen Fiss and and Bruce Ackerman and others. We've talked about John Ely's dedication in his great book, which is um, called Democracy and Distrust. It's the most important book, probably, of the previous generation of scholarship. He clerked for Earl Warren. And he dedicated it. The dedication is for Earl Warren. You don't need many heroes if you choose carefully. And um, I don't have that many heroes. And I have chosen very carefully. Um, and Gordon Wood is one of my heroes. Um, let me, since we're talking about heroes, and I, that's what I'm thinking about. I, I'm going I'm to get a chance to hang around with Gordon Wood. So you ask me what I'm actually thinking most about. Thing most about hanging out with you and Wendy and and I hope Vanita in Florida in January. That seems like a good, you know, that that sounds nice. And getting to pal around with the likes of Gordon Wood, who is my um, hero, and being able to interact with some amazing students, you know, who are also going to be there so that they can, you know, learn from from Gordon Wood. I first met you, you know, in an earlier um, iteration of what would become Every Scholar. And, and you wowed me then and you're continuing to wow me every time we, we talk. I like learn things that I didn't understand before and you push me in amazing ways. But that's what I'm looking forward to. Florida, fr- old friends, new friends, my hero, Gordon Wood. Oh, and we're going to get talk about something that I actually care a lot about. Um, and it's going to be absolutely down the fairway of my three book project. It's going to be about the revolution. Um, that's Volume One, the words that made us. But it's also going to be about the reverberations, which are going to carry me through Volume Two. I'm I'm halfway into Volume Two now, and and I'm hoping that maybe even um, I can assign some of the chapters of my manuscript in progress to get some feedback. Andy, you've read most of those chapters, and we talk every single day. I say, oh, this is what I learned today. Oh, this is what I'm going to do tomorrow. But it's exciting to be. To be able to actually research and and write something, and it's exciting to be able to share that with with, with readers. And here, yeah, it's going to be exciting for me to share um stuff with the Shows. It's a little bit like the song um "The Loadout" by Jackson Brown. The version that you've heard is actually a live version. And I, I see myself as kind of a little bit like a Jackson Brown-like person. Why? He's a singer, songwriter, composer. He composes his own material and he performs it for people. You know, or our friend John Mulaney, you know, that's what what, 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 what he does. He has his material and he performs it live. That's what he does. In the loadout, Jackson Brown begins. He actually says, I'd, I'd like to say, he studies a little bit. It's, it's, it's very cute. He says, I'd like to play a song I never played in public before. You know, so it's the first time he's actually playing his music to someone other than fellow musicians. You know, when he doesn't know if they're going to like it or not, it's all so. Yeah, so you, you know, and Wendy, Hope, Finita, Florida, Fun, Sun, Gordon, freaking Wood. Oh my God! But also being able to kind of you know show my new music off to Gordon, you know, and to a live audience. Well, and of course,
0: you know, it's interesting listening to you talk about it, because I'm thinking, well, okay, you mentioned John Hardy Lee and Democracy and distrust. So someone thinking about taking this course would say, okay, I'm going to be reading Akeel's book. I'm going to be hearing about it from Akeel, and then I'm going to be talking to Akhil about it. After, you know, after I spent all this time just reading about it, but also Gordon's going to be, it's going to bounce off Gordon. I'm going to read Gordon's book. And books. And books, right? Exactly. And the new book and actually have input into it. And then there's also the personal interaction, as you mentioned. Plus, even Gordon, so I want to talk for a minute about Paul, Paul Grimstead. You know, this is a guy who is now the head of the humanities program at Yale, which means that he is the director of undergraduate studies, which means that he is kind of the steward of the directed studies program. And of course, you and I, you know, have a great love of directed studies where which is very sort of primary text-based and where you really learn to read and you learn to write and you learn to think um, and, so- and
1: interact and talk in seminar style conversations with other smart students who have done the same reading that you have and are trying to think intelligently, you know, the way you are. And so it's not just you, you're doing this in isolation. You're doing this as part of a structured program with other students in a small setting. Correct. And Paul, by the way, has
0: recently won the teaching award at at Yale. And so anyway, we mentioned, you know, Paul to uh, Gordon and Gordon says, oh, actually, my son, Chris Wood, who taught at Yale for 22 years, he tells me that Paul is brilliant and one of his favorite colleagues at Yale. And now Gordon can't wait to talk to Paul about this. This is so, so- cool. You have
1: connected me through Ever Scholar and his predecessors to some of my own colleagues at Yale. They're just down the halls, so to speak, from me, but I didn't know them un- until, you know, I connected with Ever Scholar. So I, I kind of knew Stephen Smith kind of from afar, but I really didn't know what he was all about until I watched him lead a few seminars. And the guy is magical. He is as good, as, sem- as great a seminar leader as anyone I've ever seen. And I didn't know him until kind of these scholar like experiences. And, of course, we're
0: going to have another program as well um, in November, actually even before that, in Boston, in Cambridge, um, November 2nd to 5th, um, which, is, uh, which is called China Encounters the World. And this program is is actually very very analogous to to the other because here again, I mean it's just an embarrassment of riches in this program. So Peter Perdue, who's one of our our key uh, faculty members, a board member of Ever Scholar, is going to be one of the leaders, and along with Salman Khan from the uh, Fletcher School, who was originally one of Peter's students uh, at Yale PhD student, but they uh, in addition to these two. Leaders. He's also brought in essentially people at the same level of prestige as yourself and Gordon. So, for example, you know, Arnie Westad is essentially, so Yale is a great tradition of, China, of teaching in, uh, about China. They had Professor Jonathan Spence for many years was considered, I think, the greatest American scholar of China. Um, and he, he passed away. Uh, now, unfortunately. And then Peter took his his chair um, and has led it brilliantly. And now Peter is now emeritus and now Arnie Westad is recruited from Harvard to come to take this over and he's now one of the leaders in the Jackson School. His counterpart at Oxford, Rana Mitter, is also coming, as well as Zay Aziz, who just taught us back in January. So this is just an incredible Group, I mean, five faculty members in three days <laughs> um, to, to study Chinese foreign policy uh, through the, the 20th and 21st centuries is just an incredible opportunity. I don't think there's ever been a better collection of scholars of China brought together in one place to teach in a seminar form
1: to, you know, small class, 21 or less students ever. And, now let, me, let me play the role of Andy, because usually, you know, I don't get asked to, ask to many questions of you. What's in it, you know, for our audience? Okay, well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is because
0: it's going to be hard to get places in these programs. Um, you know, I've already had tons of people write to me saying that they want to take these programs, even before we've opened registration, which is going to happen, you know, in, in probably later this week. Um, but we've decided to reserve some places in both programs for listeners of, of our podcast, so um, you know, if you're hearing this, they'll get they'll
1: get spe-
0: special slots. Correct. We're going to have you know, we're going to reserve some slots um, that we'll offer first to members of this. Uh, so uh, this is Andy
1: as admissions czar.
0: Right. So I I would suggest that uh, you know if you if if you want to take advantage of this privilege of joining this group, um, and and it is a group, you know, it's it's a group in the sense that we get to know each other, we stay in touch. Together, I mean, you can see how Akhil and I struck up this friendship. I can't guarantee you you'll have your own podcast after this, but I, but I can guarantee you that you will make, you know, new friends with, and and make friends with people that ha- you have something in common with, which is, you know, an intellectual curiosity and intellectual hunger, and really will change your life. So anyway, um, you know that on Akhilmar dot slash podcast hyphen two, we have this opportunity to submit questions if you think you're going to be interested in registering for one of these programs um you should email you should fill that out and let us know and we're going to hold some spots as i said for listeners to this podcast so and that so that's one reason you should be interested in it the other reason is just that it's it's just an amazing opportunity All you have to do is fill out this form and we're in that's the case with the, with this course with akil and gordon and paul as well as the China program, China Encounters the World. So it's going to happen this week. So I know we took a lot of your time here, but, you know, this is important. So go to everscholar.org, check it out. You'll see information about the courses, and registration will open later this week. Send me an email or send me, uh, you know, a question. You know, fill out the form on the website, the akilamar.com website. And uh, we'll hold the spot for you if you're one of the first few to do it. So thank you for for that. And of course uh, impeachment, if it, if it took place, and I think we're both pretty realistic that it's not going to take no, place.
1: Um, because it would have to be the house of representatives
0: and Kevin McCarthy would have to give a damn. But anyway, uh, it, if it, even if it did take place, it would not preclude these sorts of charges from being brought against Donald Trump, you know, subsequently, and Let's read the rest of that clause, because, oh,
1: my God, it's just so damn relevant, Andy. Okay, so I just read, you know, there's automatic removal, and it can extend to um, disqualification, but nothing further than that. They're limiting the punitive power um, of this political tribunal. Okay, and then here's the rest of the clause, but the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable. And subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Now there are actually four boxes in double jeopardy. Otravaw uh, convict. One's called autrefra acquit. Okay, and th- th- those are two boxes. You're saying yes, but then there's also the question of whether the criminal proceeding precedes or postdates the impeachment proceeding. Okay, so you got four possibilities. The Criminal thing comes first and the impeachment comes second and there's an acquittal. The criminal proceeding comes first and the impeachment proceeding follows and there's a conviction, you know, or we're talking about the impeachment coming first, acquittal, conviction, and then, you know, criminal prosecution thereafter. I take the logic of this, even though it's actually talking about convictions in an ordinary criminal case after convictions in an impeachment proceeding i take it that the order you know could be the other way around just as an impeachment conviction should not preclude an ordinary conviction you're allowed to be double whacked here because they're different you know um, purposes of the thing i would say so an indictment conviction an ordinary criminal conviction should not in and of itself preclude An impeachment conviction. And by the way, impeachment is not just about presidents because you say, well, you know, you can't prosecute a sitting president. That's another one of my views. I expressed it in chapter one of America's unwritten constitution. Again, long before Trump, I said, president can't pardon himself. The vice president can't preside their own impeachment trial. And for similar structural implicit reasons, you know, I don't think a state can basically go after a sitting president because a state shouldn't be allowed to undo a national election. You can't have a federal prosecution easily because the federal prosecutors are working for the president himself. Can't do it
0: while they're president. You could correct. Hold it in abeyance and and maybe Correct. maybe suspend the statute yeah. of limitations or something and, and do it after they're And president. that's what I did say
1: in the book. But you can have a criminal prosecution of a sitting chief justice or associate justice or federal judge or cabin officer or vice president, and we have had such things. Aaron Burr was the sitting vice president of the United States, and he was under indictment in both New York and New Jersey, I believe, for the murder of Alexander Hamilton in the duel at Weehawken. Amazingly, Andy, at that same time, he presides over, and I think we told this in one previous episode, but since we've had 130 in, you know, our audience may not remember every single thing that we say in every single episode. Amazingly, Andy, at that time, he's as The Vice President of the United States, who's the presiding officer of the Senate, and the Senate tries all impeachments. Just what we've been talking about before, he's presiding over an impeachment trial of Judge Samuel Chase, not Salmon P. Chase, uh, Lincoln's appointee, but Judge Samuel Chase. Samuel Chase has been indicted. Samuel Chase has been impeached by the House for judicial misconduct. He's being tried by the Senate. He's eventually acquitted more than a majority votes to convict, but not by the requisite two-thirds. The presiding officer in this impeachment trial is Aaron Burr, leading WAGs to say in the newspapers in other countries... A murderer is arraigned before the judge. (laughs) But here in America, we see the judge being arraigned before the murderer. (laughs) Okay. To repeat, in my view, this, the logic of this, what we just read, this clause, which is the, let's call it the anti double jeopardy clause as between impeachments and ordinary criminal cases. These are different proceedings. So you can be convicted in an impeachment context, and that doesn't bar your future conviction in an ordinary criminal proceeding. I'm saying, okay, but the logic of that is, if you were convicted in an ordinary criminal proceeding, first, that shouldn't bar your trial and conviction in an impeachment proceeding. So, um, uh, outro convict doesn't apply. Now, what about outro acquit? What if you were acquitted in an ordinary criminal proceeding first. Should that bar your impeachment? I would say probably not if the elements of the impeachment crime are seen as any as different than the elements of the ordinary crime. And you, it need not be an ordinary statute book, Hudson and Goodwin, um, offense for impeachment. High crimes and misdemeanors is not... Using the word misdemeanor in a technical criminal uh, law sense, it really means misbehavior. I believe, and I've always said, I've taken the position that lying to the American people could be, if you're present, an impeachable offense. If, if, If you're lying about why we're going to war, we're really going to war because it's in your financial interest. No one's technically bribed you, you know, but this is going to be very profitable for you because, you know, of your investments or something. Telling the American people, this is why we're going to war, because American blood has been shed on American soil or something. That's not a statute book offense at all. And you can say, oh, freedom of speech. But that is a corrupt act going to the essence of our constitutional order. And you know who said it before me? James freaking Madison said that in the ratification process. If a president lied to the House and Senate about why we should be declaring war on some other country, easy, core, total impeachability, but not a statute book offense, perhaps um, in any ordinary sense. And, of course, you and I had an
0: editorial, uh, an op-ed in the Daily News um, around the time of January 6th saying that – essentially donald trump could be tried for impeachment for what amounted to presidential malpractice you know that he deviated from the behavior that would be reasonable for a president and we we said that maybe we should have the ex-presidents testify as to what would be reasonable behavior as experts on that so we we've and the, and this was not a matter of statutory offenses um, at Wreck. the time and and frankly there wasn't the evidence available so soon after the events to be able to prove, you know, sort of statutory violations, but you, but the behavior spoke for itself um, as being, you know, outside of the realm of appropriate presidential behavior.
1: So here are two, so I've already said, okay, there are four boxes. First, you're convicted in an impeachment court. First, that doesn't preclude your being convicted in an ordinary criminal court later on. And the, the, the words say that expressly. I said, if the order were reversed, that'd also be true. You're convicted first in an ordinary trial, criminal trial, and that shouldn't bar impeachment conviction. Now, what if you were acquitted at trial first? Well, first of all, I said, well, the offenses actually might be different. It really wouldn't be the same offense. And here's why you might have been acquitted, because there wasn't proof beyond reasonable doubt. That might be consistent with proof by preponderance of the evidence. So an acquittal in a criminal case, in my view, shouldn't bar an impeachment trial. Again, it might just been, there's not, because impeachment does not typically, the conventional view is, require proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Maybe clear and convincing evidence suffices or something. Um, now, what if you were acquitted first by an impeachment court? Can you be prosecuted in an ordinary criminal case? And I say, yes, because again, maybe what you were acquitted for is, you know, a, a different set of, of issues. Maybe you're acquitted because it's not a high Mis- you know, misbehavior. Um, but that shouldn't bar prosecution for your low cunnings. Let's, let's take Bill Clinton um, because I wrote an op-ed about this in the New York Times way back when. He lied about sex and he lied under oath to my friend Ken Starr, the late Ken Starr. I said, because the New York Times actually had a, a silly op-ed um, saying, if, she there's really a question about whether Clinton can be prosecuted after the presidency, because he did go through this impeachment thing. And I said, Oh, that's so confused. Okay. Because if we have that rule, There would be hydraulic pressure when the guy did something to say, well, you know, we don't want him to always get off scot-free. So we got to, you know, uh, convict him in the impeachment court. Otherwise, he goes off scot-free. No, that and that's going to put pressure on the idea that it has to be high misbehavior of a certain sort, even if it were the same offense. So he might have been acquitted in the impeachment contest. Just They say, yeah, he lied and he lied under oath. And that's a very bad thing. And it might even be a criminal thing, but it's. sufficiently gross as to warrant uh, undoing his election by the American people. And here's why it might. And this is a valid criteria to be taken into account in the impeachment context, because the American people kind of knew what they were getting and we voted for him anyway. That is a good defense. If you're a senator, you can say, listen. You know, I think this is bad, but at the end of the day, the American people voted for him and they knew what they were getting. And maybe he committed a criminal offense. And after he's out of office, he will have to pay the piper for that. And indeed, Clinton did plea bargain right at the very end of this time in office. And he, he was, I think, disbarred and he did plead guilty. But this sentence. And the Constitution is telling you impeachments are different from indictments, so there's no double jeopardy across these two different kinds of proceedings. Either way, four boxes, ordinary criminal prosecution is a different kind of proceeding than an impeachment proceeding. Now, you
0: when we talked about impeachment of ex-officers, things like that earlier, and even, even in the aftermath of January 6th, you wanted to see impeachments, but you yes. were not so sure about disqualification. At the time. Yes. You were uncomfortable yes. with the idea of disqualification. Um, and the idea, I think, was, well, if someone's going to run for office, we should let the American people decide whether they want to disqualify him or not. And, you know, why, you know, Congress shouldn't take it upon themselves. It, you know, it adds an additional level of partisanship to, to, the, to the whole thing. It, it makes it perhaps less uh, legitimate in the eyes of the American people. You're taking their rights away. Now you're talking about having an impeachment for the very purpose of disqualification yes. Yes. and you're saying to, and you want it done when there's an election imminent and this individual has declared his candidacy. So the right. very thing that caused you to not want to do disqualification before, now
1: you're saying he must be disqualified in your yes. view. Um, right. So what's so to, different? Have, and there's at least three problems that I have to address First, okay, Akhil, criminal prosecutions aren't d- double jeopardy bars, but what about the fact that he's already been impeached twice? Why isn't you know within the impeachment system? Why d- don't double jeopardy or triple jeopardy principles apply? Yeah, so that's that's a one question, thing that but it's at. not it's not the question I just asked. But I know I, I'm saying there are three. Yeah, yeah. So there are three. So I'm just identifying all three. You mm. know, big problems. There's one. There, there's a second. You know, Akhil, you are suggesting not, um, not just an impeachment trial, but a House of Representatives impeachment process for someone who's not even in office now. That, that wasn't true of the first impeachment. He was um, impeached while an officer by the House and tried while an officer by the Senate. That was the first one. Then the second one, he was at least impeached by the House while in office. The trial happened later, and that's what the whole Philip Bobbitt episode was all about. And he eventually took the position, oh, you can have the trial, you just can't have a conviction. And we said, what kind of, what the hell kind of trial is that? You know, you can look at the menu, but you just can't eat. You know, and we played on Howard Jones' No One Is to Blame. Okay, but now, it's the second problem I have, Andy, and then, you know, we have your question. The second problem I have is, I'm proposing an impeachment when he's not even an officer by the house and a trial. And the third one is, Akil, haven't you totally changed your mind and changed your stripes? And, you know, you said that you had some real concerns about disqualification. So those are the three things, Andy, it seems to me I have to answer. Um, Please do. Let's let's take them in that conceptual order. The first one, the double jeopardy issue. And I take the position that... It's really not quite the same offense here as the offenses for which he was acquitted because we have new additional evidence of new kinds of misconduct. And even if, Andy, we just have more evidence of the same misconduct as in the second impeachment trial, that misconduct in connection with January 6th and election denialism and all the rest, even if it's just that we have more evidence, He's responsible for the fact that we didn't have all that evidence available to us the first time around. In other words, obstruction is like the new additional element. So let's take ordinary double jeopardy. As you know, I've told you, I think I've told the audience before I, I was featured in a double jeopardy episode, some of my you know daft ideas in law and order. That involved an acquittal that was obtained by bribing the judge. And I had taken the position in scholarship that if your acquittal is procured by bribery, it's no bar to reprosecution. prosecution. And one of my theories was, and Jack McCoy, the character, repeated this word for word on the episode, is you were never in jeopardy the first time around because, quote, the fix was in. And so that you really weren't in jeopardy. And and that's what I had written in the Columbia Law Review in 1995. The fix was in. You're not in jeopardy. Now, here, I'm saying there was actually an L.A. Law episode much earlier. that featured a different thing. The guy's acquitted, and then they re-prosecute him. He says, what are you talking about? You know, I was acquitted. And they said, yes, but you took the stand. And you denied you did the thing when you took the stand. So maybe we can't get you on the underlying murder, okay, because you were acquitted on that, but we can surely get you on perjury because that's a different offense. And by the way, there was no obligation um, that you had to take the stand, and we've had many episodes on self-incrimination. And by the way, Andy, there would be nothing improper about saying in the statute book or at common law that the punishment for perjury could include everything up to the sentence that you, the punishment that you would have gotten on the underlying offense. It, it just in kind of, that, that seems morally just. Okay. So there was this, this is where I get all my law from, folks. I get it from, from television because, because David Kelly is a genius uh, and Bochco and, and some of these other folks. Um, Josh Singer. I'm saying here, obstruction is itself a high crime and misdemeanor and because actually you were continuing to obstruct all the way through your second impeachment trial certain information didn't come to light and you are responsible for that that's on you you were committing an additional crime and we might not have that harsh Approach when it comes to ordinary individuals in a criminal suit, we might, but, but, in an ordinary case, your, your life could be at stake. It could be a capital offense. Your entire bodily liberty could be at stake. It could be, you know, um, a life imprisonment offense. You're in general one individual against the massive resources of the government. You know, so it's a David against Goliath sort of situation. And the, so the law treats you with some tenderness. But here we're talking about someone. The most powerful um, government official in America, in the world, misusing that power to corrupt the impeachment process itself. Don't you see? OK, so that acquittal, you know, the, maybe the fix wasn't in. That trial went off the rails because you derailed it, Donald Trump, you know, by hiding certain evidence. And if it's only come to light, not ordinarily, see a prosecutor can't say, oh, well, we prosecuted the guy and he got acquitted and now we find new evidence and so we can go after him. Ordinarily, you can't do that, but that's in part because the prosecutor's office has all the resources, but here you see this guy is responsible. Trump is responsible for that. So that's that's my answer to the double jeopardy concern. Technically, where um, I would frame the in bill of impeachment with a slightly different wrong actions that were um, committed on you know, different dates with a slightly different legal theory overlaid on everything, connecting it all together is the idea of. Of obstruction of ongoing lying to the American people, which you remember I've always thought was impeachable and James Madison thought so too. And he's added lie upon lie upon lie. Okay. So even if you've been acquitted of one bank robbery, that doesn't give you carte blanche to go, you know, out and commit a new one or one after that. Even if you've been acquitted of one murder, you know, you, you can, uh, it's not double jeopardy if it's a different offense. That's one of my claims. And it's not double jeopardy in part because uh, we're adding this obstruction thing and you were responsible for going off the rails. Now I have to address the second concern. You're not even an officer at the time of impeachment. And I say, yeah, because it makes no sense to say you have to be an officer because you can. And and I'm just going to invite our audience to listen to all the things that we said in the Philip Bobbitt episode in which I said, Philip, I will go further. You know, I will say he could be impeached by the house, even if he's no longer in office in part, because Philip, you're, I love you, but your argument makes no sense because otherwise, you know, it's carte blanche at the end of an administration you could do. And and that's when they're most dangerous after they've been reputed by the American people. And you could do anything you want. And there's not time to impeach you and to try you at the very end. And and that's when you're most dangerous. And, and that's not a hypothetical, Philip. That's this situation right now. Damn it. Okay. So much of the evidence didn't come to light. Unsurprisingly so. This is structurally kind of obvious that this could happen because you're in control of the administration and you're, you're stonewalling and, and obstructing and, and covering up. And so. A lot of the, the evidence isn't coming to light until you're already out of office. Note, by the way, that even if you thought you could only impeach, you know, um, officers, there's still this nice question. Impeach them for what they did as an officer, which actually you're doing, or impeach them while they are an officer. Those are two slightly different things. You know, like in insurance context for malpractice, you know, are you being insured? For the procedures that you are doing today, or for a lawsuit that's being brought against you today, those are two different things in insurance context. It's called occurrence versus claims made. Correct.
0: It's two different types. And I knew of there was policies. that.
1: And I just and, and I actually knew that, but I'm not as up on uh, malpractice law as you are. And this is why we keep you around the podcast, Andy, because because you keep me straight on on issues uh, of law outside constitutional law. Let me just reassure the audience before
0: we go any further on that that I. In my over 30 years of practice, I was never sued for malpractice. So,
1: which you have mentioned before, and yes, the audience and and, and Andy is my doctor, so I put my my life, my eyes in his um, uh, very capable hands. But audience members, you're not going to be able to do that in general because he's in general retired. Even uh, if this proceeding is being brought after he's out of office, much of it, the core of it, is about things that he's done in office. That's not true of Mar-a-Lago which is stuff they did after the presidency. And it may not be true of every single alleged fact in this indictment, but much of it is his misbehavior as president. And it makes no sense given the structure of impeachment, which is about trying to pro- create proper incentives for not misbehaving in office and general deterrence and specific deterrence, retribution, all the rest. None of this makes sense, you know, even though it's a special criminal proceeding, but it is about punishment and shame and dishonor. We have to do this if you've misbehaved. You know who's on my side? John Quincy Adams said that way back when he was in Congress and and he said, I'm impeachable and accountable for anything that I ever did in office. And this was, you know, when he was, you know, out of uh, office as as president. But a couple of things just to comment here. First of all, um,
0: in terms of what you were saying about double jeopardy, in in this case, the the um, the charges in the indictment here, for example, now that might not be the same charges that might be brought if he were impeached. They, again, they might have different articles of impeachment. Right. But, but let's assume for a moment that it was the same thing that's charged here. You know, when he he was impeached the second time, there was a single article of of impeachment and it referred to inciting insurrection. Um, So, and these counts do not do that. So Mm -hmm. that in fact, it's different charges, um, which one would think might even, you know, might make it
1: easier. It Um, it does. Uh, But even, uh, Andy, I'm willing to bite the bullet, even with the same thing, because we're overlaying on all of that in effect an element of obstruction, which is not just a technical answer but a functional response the reason we're doing this is because you do, did things that that corrupted that initial proceeding you you were uh, not only that you did obstructive actions afterwards okay that's fine but but that you are the part of the reason that we didn't get to the truth the first time around or actually the second time around but the first time around on this january sixth uh, misbehavior we had an episode after the, um, the House report, uh, the Democrats mainly joined by, um, Cheney and, and I think w- one other, the Jamie Raskin stuff. I actually said, gee, if they're really serious, they should be impeaching, not just, you know, c- coming up with a report for the special prosecutor. So I haven't changed my stripes, you see, um, fully, but, but I did in our earlier episodes express concern about disqualification because yes, it, it does in effect, disfranchise it. It takes away the ability of voters. And it shouldn't be done at all lightly. Here's why, net, net. And and so I didn't say you can't do it before. I said I'm very nervous about it. Mm -hmm. And, And I'm still nervous about it, but the needle has moved for me, and I owe my audience and you an answer to, you know, what's different. What's different are, you know, two or three maybe considerations. I won't get to 18, but let me just try to think out loud here. First, just want to reassure everyone that conviction could never happen without two-thirds vote of the Senate, and that's all sorts of people in Donald Trump's own party. Indictment now can never happen without actually a majority vote in the House, and that's controlled by Donald Trump's own party, so it would have more political legitimacy now because it would be done in a by a house controlled by kevin mccarthy it's people who voted for trump maybe you voted a second time for trump who are now doing this and that has more legitimacy to me it's not just the democrats jamming the republicans okay so that's one feature and especially because it's it's, it's, that's why it won't happen but if it did happen it would be perfectly fine because it would be kevin mccarthy's house doing this and not nancy pelosi's so that relevant to this and i could look at every republican in the eye and say do not blame me this is your own party and you might say and they're saying yes and i hate them too because they're disfranchising me and i might say they also i say this with great respect to you fellow citizens, may know more than you do okay because you're not paying attention every day And I used to actually, and and I have less respect, honestly, for some of my fellow citizens than I used to, because I just don't think they're remotely paying attention. And this is a problem. Long term, you know, democracy ends if we don't do this. I just got to get through this period, because I actually think Trump, and this is maybe a third point, is uniquely malignant would be especially dangerous were he to be reelected. And then there would be no more elections at all. And I'd be foolish stupid to let a concern about election integrity, you know, put me in a situation where actually because I'm not I don't have the guts to do the right thing. We have no more elections and democracy ends and that I'm more worried about that now, I think than I was before, because we've had a lot of time for people to process the information and some of them aren't processing the information. And this is repeat. It's going to disfranchise some people in a a certain way, but only because Mitch McConnell, you know, is actually a sane and sober person. And he's a Mr. Republican. And and I want to give him a chance to actually do the right thing because he didn't do the right thing in the second impeachment. Mitt Romney did. You know, some Republicans did. Ten House members did. And all praise and honor to you, Liz Cheney, for doing the right thing and Peter Meyer for doing the right thing. And why did they do this? Because they This was a great political cost to them to do it. But they had, because they're paying attention much more closely, and they know just how malignant these actions have been, whether or not technically criminal beyond a reasonable doubt. They are gross political misbehavior. They are high misdemeanors. And politicians understand this better than ordinary folks, and the Constitution gives it to them. It, it, It makes politicians be the judges of other politicians.
0: I also think that, you know, the... Well, I think perhaps the charge was more serious in the second impeachment than the charges that Jack Smith is bringing now. You know, if if he wasn't acquitted, he wasn't convicted, but he was... I would have voted to convict. Um, You know, and he was charged with essentially insurrection or aiding the insurrection. Um, Now he's being charged with obstructing the vote. He's actually... This is actually getting more to the heart of democracy, of the actual voting itself. And you could make an argument that he should be disqualified from participating in that procedure, which he is undermining directly. It might not be as serious a crime as insurrection, in in a sense, but it is more relevant to the question of whether or not he should participate in this process.
1: Yes. Well, another way of putting that, there. there's so many different ways. We're not going to get to 18, but he has been so unrepentant. He is doubling down and quadrupling down. And so now more serious, you know, medicine is necessary because here's what I wanted. I wanted an impeachment conviction at least. So there would be even not disqualification that judgment on the record for history and because i didn't get that so so i'm not even totally changing my stripe i'm saying I at least want a conviction now here you're saying oh but you want a conviction and you want more and in part i want more because let's, let's, let's connect it to hate speech america allows much more racial hate speech than europe does in principle i think the american model is the more confident and robust one. We we actually think even if we allow hate speech, the people will, in, in the end, do the right thing. And Europe has less confidence about that because it endured uh, Hitler to say nothing of Stalin. And we haven't had those in America. So they need stronger medicine because their, their democracies are weaker, more fragile. I was more confident a few years ago than I am now, actually, about the state of our democracy because you know, fool me once, you know, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. I thought, okay, the first time around, I'm apoplectic about Trump in 2016. We should put up, um, again, what I wrote on Halloween 2016 that, you know, uh, you know, I actually end this thing. The, my last sentence wake up America, exclamation point. And our audience will know that I'm not always screamy, yelling about stuff. So, okay, but then 2020, oh, that was a bit of a wake up call. Still so many people doubling down, but now... Still, so many people put differently. If ever, ever there were a case for disqualification, I think this is it. And you, you could say Akil. It's not just about presence. It's about other officers. So you shouldn't actually ever disqualify a president because that's disenfranchising folks. You can you can disqualify a judge, a judge or a justice or a cabinet officer. But but. And I think actually, although every, all sorts of officers and ex-officers are impeachable, they were thinking most of all about presidents because they could, in the, the Republican experiment, they're, they're the most dangerous. And they were, I promise you, because I'm an originalist, focusing on the possibility of disqualifying an utterly disgraced president. They were. And so now I'm thinking, is there any situation at all that's more compelling for disqualification than this one? And I can't think of it. So even if I don't like the death penalty you know, if ever there was a case for a death penalty, you know, it's Timothy McVeigh or Adolf Hitler or something like that. So here, if ever, and I, and I didn't say don't do disqualification. I said, disqualification makes me nervous and I'm not open and I'm not supporting it. Now I am. And I've given you some of the reasons why. Okay. And you're saying that the very reason to have the impeachment
0: is because it offers a cleaner. I mean, there are other reasons, the judgment history and that sort of thing, but the but in this case, the very reason to do it is because of this clean
1: path disqualification. But let me just right. throw some. Hold on. And Andy, because there's no removal. He's not in office. No, I understand. So the, the, the only punishments that are mentioned are removal and disqualification. Removal isn't really a conceptual possibility because he's not in office. This is entirely about disqualification. That, so when, when Bill Clinton said, oh, when I was in, you know, off on my roads, you know, I, I tried pop, but I didn't inhale. Barack Obama said, "Of course I inhaled. that's the point, okay, and I'm saying, yes, the point of impeachment here this time around would be disqualification yes, okay, so let me let me throw
0: a, a hypothetical at you then so first of all, as a premise, let's just take that if we look at the charges uh, that Jack Smith has filed, let's just say those would be the articles of impeachment and be you know identical just for argument's sake um. Yeah. So we look at these and another premise I want you to grant me is that none of these are specific to his conduct uh in using the office of the presidency. In other words he was president mm. but but he but he, the same things could have been done um uh, as a private citizen. Uh, okay. So It's not true but okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, well, but I'll give it mo- to you just for the hypothetical. It's, it's largely true I think when you look at it. Um, okay. He did some things like he said, you know, to, to Bill Barr, you have to run an investigation, and only right. the president could do that. But if you yes. took that out of this, if you took that out of this, the charges would, would still carry very much the same force. Um, okay. Um, so suppose now that Joe Biden committed, lost the election um in 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 2020 and that he com he did all of the same things now that donald trump did he got on and he said no this is illegitimate and he said okay let's get some fake electors together and let's do this and that and let's and he calls up the georgia secretary of state and says you got to find me some votes and he and Mm -hmm. he, he does all of these things um and he even calls up the vice president and he says you know Pence, you've got to do something about this because this, you know, da-da-da. All of these things. So he commits all the acts that, that Donald Trump did. Well, he, he's not president. He lost the election here as, as in a premise. He can't be impeached.
1: Okay, but oh, he, he can, did, because in my view, remember, as the former Vice well, President yeah, of the United but, States, he's always impeachable. Now, this is, goes back to claims-based and occurrence-based. I could be daft about all this wrong, but I'm an expert. I was asked to testify in a recent impeachment, not the president's, but the impeachment of Thomas Porteous, who was a corrupt Judge and I took the position he could impeach because of actions that he took that were corrupt in the process of becoming a judge. He lied to the Senate of the United States. Okay. And I said, look, if. It says treason, bribery are high crimes and misdemeanors. It's not just high crimes and misdemeanors. They give us two examples, treason and bribery. And bribery isn't just taking a bribe, it's giving a bribe. And, of course, if you give a bribe in order to get the office, that has to be impeachable, you know, in the basic logic of the thing. And this is what they're focused on, even if you're not yet an officer. So let's imagine, uh, you know, a would-be judge who's um, offering a bribe to be nominated to or confirmed um, for a judgeship that utterly impeached and and they get the position. Okay, so now they're an officer. I'm impeaching them for conduct that they engaged in before they were an officer. But you have to have been an officer at some point in your life because this is about office holding. But Joe Biden has been. Joe Biden was the vice president of the United States. Right. But none of that. Would be applicable
0: here in this scenario because he didn't. None of this had to do with him being vice president or senator for that matter.
1: Oh no, no! This is why it's porteous. It's misconduct in order to get an office. Because you're saying, imagine it's Biden doing what Trump did. He's calling up people in Georgia and right. all this. now. He doesn't have okay. power. I, I, the I, president I has because, is... you know, uh, when a president calls you up and he controls the army and, and the FBI and all the rest, that's so much more of a threat than when just some, you know, would be, you know, um, uh, office holder, some candidate. But no, this is Porteous. I'm saying actually misconduct that you're engaging in, um, in connection with getting an office is under the law. Impeachment is, is, is very much about office but I'm understanding it functionally and structurally to be about stuff related to office holding and office seeking.
0: Yeah. Okay. But you're, you're, you're running a foul. So you're not allowing me to pose the question that this hypothetical is posing. Okay. Because then let's this change is, it from Biden. This this is, is Biden. In the hypothetical okay. would be
1: trying to get an office correctly.
0: Yes, exactly. But it has right. nothing to do with the fact that he was an officer. There are two ways we could change the hypothetical to get rid of this extraneous point that you're making. One would be to say, we'll we'll postulate that Biden had never been an officer. Great. Or the other is we just move it back to 2016 and say that Trump took these, lost the 2016 election and took all these actions in the aftermath of the 2016 election. Because he had never done anything in the government at that point. So my point here is that the same actions where disqualification is not available can't prompt impeachment. I mean, maybe disqualification, disqualification is available through Section 3 of the 14th Amendment like we, talk, like we talked about before. But to me, there's a little bit of, of unequal
1: treatment here. Um, it's brilliant. I, I Now I get it. I see it more clearly. Okay, but two things. One, section three is actually about people who actually um, did things um, after having taken a, of office, in fact. But yes, you've pushed me true. to the following proposition that I didn't see with great clarity before, but this is what brilliant students do. My position is that Porteous was impeachable, even if he had never ultimately taken office, because i I think the impeachment the fun the, it, again, this is why we have to move beyond literalism to see what the point is. I'm saying it's about offices, okay? And ordinary people doing ordinary things shouldn't be impeachable, even if they do bad things, OK? But even if you are not an officer and never were an officer, but you did things corruptly in order to get an office. I would say yes. The logic of my position is: you're properly impeached by the impeachable by the House, convictable by the Senate, and disqualifiable because this is about protecting the integrity of the office from those who are violating the purity of office. I know I'm sounding a little bit like Stanley Kubrick, and you know, in, in in the purity of essence or something in Doctor Strange. Love. It's about protecting mm-hmm. the purity of. Office. That's the impeachment idea. So yes, Andy, this is why we have this podcast, okay? Because I now see my position, and and Philip is now laughing at me because you know. Um, but but Philip, I believe this mind makes functional and structural and purposive sense, okay? Because we have to protect the integrity of offices against those, who, and and here's what I am saying. Here's the core: bribery. And this is what I testified to many years ago um, in the poisoning. Bribery isn't just about taking a bribe, but giving a bribe. And you could do that as a private person. Oh, and by the way, treason can surely be committed by someone who's not an office holder. But in order to protect the integrity of the office, it's easiest of all if the, bri- so I'm not saying any bribery counts. But bribery in connection with seeking an office seems to me to come within the purview. If you have tried to cor- corruptly acquire office, you should—I think—it's permissible for you to be disqualified from ever being an officer.
0: No, Chris, we're not talking about bribery here, and necessarily unless. But, this is some, but putting that aside, this is something new. I've never heard you say this before, that yeah. you can be impeached if you've never held office and never yeah, been in I've, office never, office I've never
1: thought of it before, but that is, I really think, office. the logic of my porteous position.
0: Mm.
1: Now, it, port, porteous plus what we said about Trump and the second impeachment equals this. And I don't think it's a bridge too far because it still protects almost everyone. What I'm saying is, for bill of attainder and other reasons, I do not want the House to be able to impeach me as a private citizen or you or the Senate to try us. Okay. That's not what they should be spending their time on. This provision is about limiting impeachment because you see in Britain, anyone can be impeached for anything. Private people can be impeached and punishment doesn't just extend to removal and disqualification. And it, and, and they want to limit impeachment can be a monster because it's the legislature acquiring judicial power and it's allowing the House to be a prosecutor and the Senate to be judge and jury. It's very dangerous, but it's about protecting the integrity of office. Th- this is a little bit like, you know, the doctor in Bologna, you know, or the, the Lord of the Manor Dale. It, you don't get to actually try your own impeachment if you're a vice president. I'm thinking about what the logic of the, because I'm not being literalistic. I'm being actually trying to understand what the integrity is. And I'm taking seriously the words only, shall extend only to, they actually, you know, it, it, it shall, shall, shall not extend further than they want to limit it. And I am limiting it. It's about protecting the 300 million of us from ever being impeached. But yes, if you're Donald Trump in 2016, you would never been president. And let's imagine you lose, but you're doing stuff very, very, you know, uh, corruptly to acquire office. You're bribing people in order to find the requisite votes in Georgia or whatever. Wow. Should you ever be eligible to be president? No. I don't think you should. Who should make that call? I think the House and Senate. Yeah. Cause you were threatening to undermine the presidency of the United States and there, and they are good judges of that. They're politicians. They know what's kind of fair game and what goes too far. You're never going to be convicted unless, you know, a third of the people in your own party vote against you uh, at least. So yeah, Andy, I, this has been a genuinely amazing conversation because you've helped me. See that? I think that probably is my position. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, that's. A, it sounds like it's time for
1: a law review article. Um. <laughs> and Andy, maybe I'm going to rethink this next week once we hear back from the readers, because this is just in our conversation. That's what I love about our conversations; they're so spontaneous. But here's why. At least at this nanosecond, on third thought, I still think it's right. But but you know, haven't written about this ever before, and 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 deeply researched it. Okay, let's take my reason for rejecting Phillips Bobbitt's idea that you can't impeach someone once they're out of office. And I say, well, if they've misbehaved, they're about to be impeached or tried and they try to resign one nanosecond, one minute before the gavel, you can't let them do that because they escape disqualification and uh, condemnation that comes with that, the moral stigma, because it's not just about removal. Because from a certain point of view, well, they're out. So what's the problem? They're out of office because it's not just about removal. It's about disqualification and the stigma associated with that. So if that's true, that you can't let them step down one minute before the impeachment gavel. Now let's work it from the other angle. Because I'm proposing an impeachment of someone who's never been an officer and you know now, never will be. Okay, fine. Let's say you can't do that. If you couldn't, the nanosecond, the minute they do become an officer, you could say, you're an officer now and we should impeach you and we're impeaching you because of your the misconduct that you engaged in before you were an officer in the process of becoming an officer. And if we can do that, and surely we can, no problem. Why should we ever let you be an officer for a minute? Because we know in advance that you are not fit for office because you cheated on your way to getting an office. So, so if it becomes clear that Portius, for example, is lying in the process of becoming an officer, we should be able to impeach him right then. In. in ad- advance. And the the sanction here is only, you know, we're not taking away his life. We're not taking away his liberty. We're just saying you're not fit to hold an office. And why not do that in advance when you have the evidence, when it's the most fresh, if it's a president or something like that. Now you're telling the voters in advance, don't vote for this guy. You can't. He's ineligible rather than having all of that happen afterwards. But the consequence here, just to repeat, is only that you can't hold the office. Now, finally, you could say, Well, Porteus was cheating in connection with the very office that he holds. But Akeel in your hypothetical, you admitted that you could impeach and convict someone when they were cheating for some other office. And I'm saying, yes, and back to law and order, my friend, intent follows the bullet you shoot at one person and you're trying to kill him and you end up because there's a ricochet killing someone else. I don't care. You tried to kill someone and that's enough. And you ended up doing it. You cheat and trying to get one office intent follows that you're unfit to hold any other office, or at least actually the house and the Senate can, can so find. And I'm taking seriously what the key purposes, is, which is not just removal from office, but protecting the integrity of office holding generally and not going beyond that. And the nice thing about this hypothetical is we're not taking away anyone's bodily liberty or their life. They take a reputational hit. Yes. And that's inherent in saying you're unfit for office and we're not letting them hold office.
0: In a way, you're redefining what it means to hold office, to extend that into the period where you seek the office. And that's not all that different from talking about legislature as the lawmaking body um, and talking about the office and including seeking the office as part of holding the office. And I think that we do that already a little bit because the candidates get uh, intelligence briefings once they get the nomination and they candidates get secret service protection. So there are things that are extended to them that are extended to no other citizen. So we do actually mark them as uh, part of the office holding process before they hold it.
1: And Andy, this is brilliant because I'm a textualist. I really believe in textualism, but words aren't self-defining. And at the margins, we actually have to think about whether literalism makes sense or not. You spilled blood on the streets of Bologna, you deserve to die. No, you save someone's life. It says you get to try all, all, it says all, all cases in the manner deal. Yes, but not when you yourself are litigant, that's obscene, you know? So yes, I'm going beyond literalism to make sense of the function and the purpose. What is legislature about? It could be a body. It could be the process it, you know, is is a corporation a person or not? It depends on on purpose and function. So yes, that's a. There are two brilliant points you made there, Andy. One is like the legislature, and second, we already treat them differently for other purposes. Uh, office seekers.
0: Okay, so there you have it. Another in the long list of crazy Aquilamar <laughs> ideas that will never <laughs> see the light of day.
1: If we can get my Porteous testimony, that would be something useful to. I have it. I can. Okay. I can. Uh, I don't have the video, but I have the transcript. Yes, um, and and it, it's me with Adam Schiff, and Adam Schiff, not of Law and Order uh, fame, but the the real life Adam Schiff, who's running to be senator from California. Yes. Well, there's a lot more
0: to talk about here, uh, but we've gone on as we tend to do. Um, but just to tease, what were some some things that we want to talk about in the you know in the either the next episode or future one, probably next one. Um, we want to talk about. The, some questions that have been raised about
1: the venue of the trial. Right. And, and Alan Dershowitz, who's been a guest on the podcast, has raised some questions, so we'll try to answer them. And also, there's really at the heart of the case, um, there's this
0: question about so called fake electors. And now another term has been, been raised uh, contingent electors. And we want to, you know, draw a distinction between those. And that's that really at the heart of this case in some way. It is.
1: Uh, um, and I've thought a lot about this and we will also, especially for those members of the audience who are, are lawyers and, and even otherwise, we're going to talk about a phrase. Um, You hear it a lot and it actually has a special significance, a special juridical significance. We'll talk about legal fictions, what they are and aren't. um, And that's connected in a very deep way to this issue about contingent electra- electors versus fake electors
0: okay so we'll, we'll be getting to, to all that and uh, there's more too
1: um, but look
0: forward to it next week